You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Formative experiences that I had, uh, formative experiences that I had here, uh, it continually influenced the work throughout the years. Uh, these images that we're going to click through—that's uh, me on the left there when I was little, and I grew up in West Baltimore, Edmondson Village. And when I was a kid, the backyard 
was my world. It was so much larger and my imagination formed there. When I was little, I thought that this rock that was by the trash cans was like a boulder. Years later, when I finally saw the pictures, I realized it was just a slab of cement. Um, and that kind of uh, enchantment with everyday things uh, is pervasive, I think. On the right is uh, my granddad. He could make anything grow in any soil, and that's some of the corn that he grew. Uh, so, and also in an Edmonds village. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just some other pictures. My grandmom, my mom and I lived with my grandparents. We all lived together, and uh, my grandmom would, uh, we didn't have a lot. We weren't super wealthy, but my grandma would take whatever there was and patchwork it together uh, and create this kind of beautiful array of brocades and florals and stuff. And I, I think somewhere I have a bit of an old lady aesthetic due to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was a kid here in the 80s, uh, my mom designed clothes here and she was the fashion editor of Baltimore Style magazine, so I was in and out of fabric stores all the time when I was a kid, and uh, on the left is one of her designs. She studied at FIT in Paris and in New York, and when she was in Paris, the artist Airtight befriended her. Uh, so as a kid, like seven, seven or eight years old, I tried to copy him, and he was the first artist I really uh, acknowledged in my makeup. And plus that image of his work is kind of how I feel when I'm in the studio, or, mm -hmm. or what I strive to be. That's the ideal, but it's not exactly the graphic lines and this sort of looping, swirling, emotional. Yeah, leaping, frolicking, ribbon, yeah. gesture, um, without the, the, the heartbreak and sadness and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's that image. Anyway. So when I was a kid, uh, Baltimore Museum was big in my world, and uh, my my grandma loved Romeo Bearden. We had posters. He was the only artist that existed for her. Um, she loved him as though she knew him. As, uh, like his image of his face was like he was a family member or something. And so, as a kid, I looked up to him, not knowing anything really about him. And this poster was in our living room. And I distinctly remember a moment where, looking at this poster, watching Sanford and Son with, with my family in that patchwork floral living room, I realized that somehow there was this cross between these realities. Um, and I guess I developed a love for collage and that. Make some objects. Come on in. There's a smattering of Baltimoreness. <laughs> <laughs> so all images from your childhood, from art, and I think I think it's interesting also the the piece that I always sort of associate with you is the Rauschenberg piece at the BMA that we talked about Canyon that that formed a really um, kind of significant impression on you that combination yeah. of fabric and the discarded with an image and abstraction. And yeah. Um, there was this painting that used to be here, but now it's housed at MoMA, uh, that uh, Rauschenberg created as a combine, one mm -hmm. of his early combines. 
that has a, a black eagle in it, like a taxidermied eagle. And uh, there are all these other bits of a shirt where shirt becomes color and these gestures in it. And I used to look at that piece quite a bit and it, it showed me how objects could be scannings for color <coughs> and hold the meaning of it. And it's very like American, that, that particular piece. And also when I was really little, I, I, I don't know why, but maybe because of Romare Bearden, I thought Rauschenberg was black. Um, <laughs> there's something about the way he used objects and uh, I connected him with Romare Bearden in my mind. Hmm. Um, I also thought Freddie Mercury was black, too. <laughs> years later, it was that another one bites the dust off. <laughs> anyway, and moving to um, some of these fabric pieces with the calligraphy. Oh, so, yeah, in the, um, when I was a kid, uh, I went to some of those images from before shows me as a kid. Um, I went to School for the Arts, which had a pretty strict <coughs> traditional uh, kind of training where drawing is was really important. And at MICA, an undergrad drawing was really important. You couldn't abstract life without being able to render life. And I took a lot of drawing classes, so uh, where I was tortured by my, my teachers. <laughs> Like hours and hours of drawing ellipses, where the line in one gesture had to be from light to dark, and and be a perfect oval. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about bearing the weight of the line. So that's like embedded in me. Like it was kind of beaten into me mm -hmm. in a way. And um, on the other side of that, uh, with some of my friends that I went to high school with, and one in the room, but I won't say who. <laughs> we. You know, they showed me a world of tagging and graffiti, and I, through my friends and looking at their tags, developed my own hand style. Uh, but I didn't really think of that as as work work until ten years later. Um, in undergrad, I also took courses in Japanese calligraphy and language, and so I guess when I got out of undergrad, I didn't want to make art. Mm -hmm. um, so you moved into the film world. Yeah, I worked yeah. in costuming, and I was a volunteer dresser at the opera here. And um, you worked on a John Waters film, Barry Levinson film, a couple films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, everyone has done time on a John Waters at some point. Mm -hmm. Not um, everybody. <laughs> well, a lot of us. A lot of us of a certain generation have. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was an extra in Crybaby, and I had to sing and dance. Um, and then I did costuming on Serial Mom. But, you know, in the film, I moved to LA and, and it just didn't feel like, it felt, didn't feel like it was feeding my soul and art was the only thing that really, I felt like was me and gave me the most joy. So I went back to school to teach because mm -hmm. I still didn't give myself permission to be an artist. So you went to Boston to, to do a, a master's in teaching. <laughs> yes. yes, I did a master's in teaching, and then I came back here and I worked with this lady in that lady at the Walters. Um, 
uh, a little bit ago. So you didn't actually teach public, public school. school? I did. We taught. Oh, did. Well, okay. well, the Walters had this amazing program and grant that uh, provided art education with a literacy-based art education in um, Baltimore City Public School, middle okay. schools. Um, so I guess I went over to Mount Royal okay. and uh, there were four schools. Yeah. Yeah, there was one over by North Avenue. Yeah, there were four. I can't remember. Maybe Cindy does, but I can't remember. <laughs> and it, and it, it, it's so great to teach kids. I, I studied, I had a focus on teaching high school. Mm -hmm. And um, I taught at a Boston School for the Arts, which was planned after our school for the arts here. Okay. It was modeled after BSA. And I taught 10th grade visual arts. And I also did an intro to film for ninth graders, and I taught full time as part of my practicum. That is rough. Right. It was rough. <laughs> it was really my current debt for how I was in high school, <laughs> yeah. um, working with the kids, and they were they're great. But it was it's very emotional, and young young artists, you know, are angsty and like to hurt themselves and stuff. So it's too emotional for me. It's a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama, but the kids here were great. Um, it's magic to that age when you're three. And it's really interesting that now we've come back to that, and, and including performance yeah. and sort of community performance and a children's museum yeah. as well. We can get there yeah. later. Get there, um, but, but so yeah. basically, I I realized that teaching wasn't my calling because I didn't. I, it was too emotional for me. Um, to do on a full-time basis. I love working with kids, but like part-time. So then I came back to Baltimore and went to grad school. Sometimes I'm for both. <laughs> I, I tell a long story, but um, when I came back, uh, I, w I was doing figurative work and I wanted to take away the figure and there was always this line holding stuff together. And when I decided to strip away everything but and just work with the line, writing came out naturally and it's kind of the convergence of the Japanese calligraphy courses, tagging, writing here, and the, and then drawing classes. So this is all script. Uh, this is one of the first pieces I made when I first started working again as an artist. It's it's paint on vinyl, and it's a drape. And um, I guess I I realized that writing was like a form of meditation for me. I mean, it's also incredibly visual and, and beautiful. I think for, for those of us who like calligraphy and they like, you know, words and, and fonts and they're, I mean, they're very elegant, the, the thick to thin and the serif and the sans serif. And I see a lot of that in the work that sort of breaking apart and sort of the pure aesthetics of that. There's, it's interesting. I guess, you know, there's for me a balance between an elegant line and a torn line. Mm -hmm. There's a there's more rugged details within it and things, I guess because it's beautiful, I try to subvert my hand. Because you, you know, when you write your signature, it's so rote mm -hmm. in a way. So I've abstracted many, like this is a way of just where I've cut things and, and made it more sculptural. And sometimes I wipe it out and put it back and I cover it up. Um, there's, this is at the portrait gallery a few years back. Um, and you finished grad school, so you did the Mount Royal program at Micah for grad school and MFA. You finished in what, 2002, 2003? And then from there on, your career kind of hit.
and a pretty big jump at a studio museum in Harlem in New York. Yeah, I moved directly to New York and did some residencies that were really helpful for me to meet people and start showing when I first moved there. I think the first couple of years of my career, I did 10 or more group shows each year. Um, and in particular, out of that show, there's some artists who are definitely, you know, big names who are still your contemporaries and, and doing projects, you know, in museums across the world the same way that you are. So this one's 2008. Is this, do you consider this a portrait? Um, well, you know, I've been, I collect a lot of stuff, and I've been collecting um, memorabilia from people who have passed away, like celebrities, hip-hop stars in particular. Um, while I was, at that time, I was going to build a requiem, a large-scale piece that was a requiem. This one um, is kind of bad. It's, it, there's images of people who, from hip-hop that have passed away up until that point. Um, and it was a collaboration with Nikki Giovanni. Um, she had written a piece uh, for this show that we were in, and I interpreted some of it in the text, and then there was a speaker piping her reading a poetry in the room. So should we drop the, the, the Tupac uh, reference from BSA? Or? She went to school with Tupac at, the, at, at BSA, yeah. So it's interesting to see that cycle back in. So I was working on the wall, from the canvas to the wall, and then, then you know, I did, I did, I guess, a ton of these pieces that were ephemeral. They were temporary, you know, they only existed in that moment, in that space, and then I recycled, started recycling the bits. So we're starting to see the emergence of, of fabric, where she's actually taking clothing, fat, you know, cloth, different sort of discarded items, Recycling items and, and just kind of sticking them into the surface. And well, yeah, how did that happen? Using them as paint, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, was, using them as paint. It was freeing to use color, um, found color on that existed on clothing and objects and and the pattern that existed and yeah. instead of trying to make it up at the time. That's a detail from the next piece. That's, that's there. You see, there's like an O shirt in there. <laughs> I didn't realize that the piece that she has right now, the MA in Generations, the, the rainbow, um, none of that, she didn't dye any of the colors. They were all collected and selected specifically to fit into that continuum. Yeah, that's in there too. So it's really interesting, this idea of, of painting almost as a concept and then using um, materials that people basically don't want anymore as your palette. I think there's something really powerful and, and, and relevant right now in particular about that, but also um, we talked a little bit about Baltimore as a place where people sort of sometimes there are things just sort of out on the street, in the street, um, when people are sort of, you know, put out of their apartment and you see all yeah. the lives out on the street and that that sort of inspired you to... Yeah to build these constructions, assemblages of these kind of materials and see value in them. Yeah, um, we were talking about that. Um, I think it, it, when I was a teenager and I was living in Druid Hill at the time, sometimes you would see people being evicted where, uh, it wasn't like gentle, it was kind of a violent, it's a violent act, 
it wasn't like you, they set up a little U-Haul thing and put their stuff out gently. It was everyone's keepsakes and belong, like cherished items, dresser drawers, family photos, you know, spare change, bits of clothing, jewelry, boom, just there on the street. And when I'd pass something like that, it was almost like you were passing like a scene of something tragic had happened, even though there's no one there. And I didn't ever want to take anything from those situations. But those images, I guess, did inspire me to look at belongings differently. So maybe quick. Yeah. So between that and just looking at random things that you see on the street, like, or even in my daily life, to, on the bottom left is my grandmom's neighbor's socks. My grandmom's neighbor's socks. Um, I guess it was his sock day. Um, but there was something really beautiful about that image that has stayed with me. Uh, uh, up on the upper left is. Uh, African bag sellers in New York, where bags are tied up to be concealed, but they're on these dollies to make a quick getaway. And uh, you know, just this random Nike Air sitting here on this box in Hell's Point. Shoes left out, shoes walked out of empty bowls. Um, this idea of our objects being left behind, but they, they haven't, you know, they allude to what had transpired with them before, and, and ideas of displacement and commerce and, uh, come together in the work. So. And so then you're taking these objects and you're sort of taking them out of their context. I mean, for me, my, my artist brain is sort of fascinated by this process because the world is just so overwhelmingly filled with these things with these objects and they're filling, you know, the oceans and the landfills and, and for you to be able to make something coherent out of that through this process of sort of bundling. Um, and for you, is that almost a protective gesture or is it, there's also that, that element of um, sort of bondage that happens as well that I'm curious about. Um, yes. All of that. Um, I think that it's taken me a while to understand what I'm doing. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to do that, to bind these things together. At first, I wanted to make a bale like a machine. And since I'm not a machine, it came out in these lumpy different bundle forms. But I think um, over time, I've come to recognize that I am trying to make an order out of a chaos around me or in my own world. And sometimes the pieces uh, achieve that, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes it, it's almost organized. <laughs> sometimes it's almost balanced. Um, but in, I am trying to glean some sort of poetry out of the mess, <laughs> the machinations. That, and also, you know, the connection between our human nature and our basic needs, and how we feather our nests, um, yeah, it's all intriguing. So, and some of these start to sort of take on a, almost a human form. I think a lot of them are bigger than a human, but keep going. Yeah. Like, 
because there's a lot of bundles. Some of them have cards dangling. You're sort of starting to incorporate aspects of the, the space as well, filling a space, and that's something that was a sort of a transition as well. Well, um, yeah, I guess in the same way that I, I um, think about com composition in terms of a flat space, because I didn't study sculpture, so I really didn't know how to make sculpture. I still really don't. I make objects and I figure them out every time. Um, but I had to consider the space that they were in, and I started to think about gravity and lightness and sometimes giving the illusion of weight and vice versa. And then figure, figure shapes start to, to form where they're either becoming a figure or they're not. Uh, they're unraveling. Do you think there's something sort of secretive about these as well? Like almost like they're trying to conceal the stories? Or do you think in the way that you're, you're composing them, you're sort of um, like creating new stories out of them? Well, I usually think of it as the latter, um, where I'm, in my own mind, I'm creating new stories and creating connections between people and things and bringing them all together. Each thing has a meaning for me and a memory or a memory attached to it for me, but I realize that it's also concealing. It's, everything is kind of riding the edge between becoming and being bound and potentially unraveling or being secret or completely revealed. Yeah. Okay. Where's that piece you were talking about? There's that piece. Um, and it's very beautiful in the context of the, the Baltimore Museum of Art right now. And um, but for this, like, where did you get all of these? What is, like, what is the actual, is it clothing? Is it fabric? Is it a combination? Where did it come from? <laughs> Like, what is, we can maybe talk about your process a little more in general. Like, where do, you where do I source this stuff? Yeah, source all it. this stuff. Well, when I started making this work, people were really happy to give me all the things they didn't want anymore. Uh -oh. So I have a lot of stuff, um, and I, I call my own closet and like like the people around me first. Mm -hmm. And I have I have shelves and shell like bins of stuff that I keep. Um, but when something's color specific like this, and it's all found color, it's kind of an Albers exercise where I'm mixing, your eye finishes it when you're looking at it because there's a lot of fading um, use. Uh, there's also pattern embedded in it. Uh, so I go to Salvation Army sometimes, tag days, and they like to color code stuff. So green is the hardest to do in this situation. Why? Mm -hmm. Like Kelly Green, like green, green is hard to find. Huh. And for me, seeing this piece, especially in a museum, and it's full of um, abstract paintings, well, I mean, you know, not abstract paintings, but they're all supposed to be abstract. <laughs> but, um, okay, I'll click. Do you want to click? You can click. Okay. We can click. Um, the idea of recycling, I mean, we, I feel like we hear so much suddenly, all of a sudden, fast fashion is, is an issue, and the idea that you know, it used to be that, you know, a generation ago, people's parents would buy the fabric and make the clothing, and you would have a couple of nice pieces of clothing, and and then when you outgrew it, you would give it to someone else, and now it's, it's more affordable, actually, 
you know, to buy something from one of these retail places that costs a couple of dollars, and oh my gosh, isn't it so cheap? And you wear it a few times, and then where does it go? Um, it's a landfill. It goes into a landfill. Right, right. right. Um, some mostly landfill. Other times, it gets shipped overseas. Uh, there's a surplus value to our used clothing. Uh, it's a huge industry where everything that we give away, not everything, but a good portion of the things that we give away with an altruistic notion that you're giving it to someone uh, that may need it, it gets resold and resold and chunked into bales and shipped overseas, mostly to Africa, or to places where it was made, actually, uh, sometimes destroying local industries. So that's the dark side of, of fast fashion. It's one of the sides. And it's, to me, it's really interesting to see such um, like a, a beautiful like iteration of that. But I like that it also um, you know, makes us consider what we're buying, where we're buying it, who's actually making those, those items, and, and the, the twisting, and then just like you can see your hand in, in every sort of move. There's like a tenderness to that as well. But I think you also see the paintings, especially the ones that are combining those elements together. Um, it's true. Um, each one is kind of uh, is carries the physical evidence of me, uh, more so than I'd like to admit at the beginning. Of until recently, I, I guess I'm admitting more. There's more of me in it than I was allowing myself to admit. Uh, there's there's the gesture of my body tying things, the reach of my arm and in the brush, uh, and it's my actual clothing and the people around me. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of self-portraiture in the work, uh, like um, some of these pieces here. Do you think, um, as an artist, does it make you feel sort of vulnerable when to people, like random people seeing the work, that if you sort of admit that it is sort of about you, your history, your family, these traditions, that then it... It didn't until now. No, <laughs> um, no I, I guess uh, I was focused on the formal aspects, and you know, when I was in school, it, it was really impressed upon me in grad school that not to talk about myself. Hmm. Not to talk about um, the personal, the emotional, the spiritual, mm -hmm. all the things that I really want to talk about. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I started to focus in on how they were made and what they were made out of, um, but all those elements that I, you know, wasn't really talking about, they're just there because that's what I want to talk about, I guess. I mean, that's, that's what I have to say. Yeah, and that's really interesting, too, because I feel like you were sort of so far ahead of the curve in maybe like 2005 or 2008 that people didn't know how to talk about even the, the element of material culture and, you know, history and tra tradition and, and the things that, I mean, the conversations that we're having now about contemporary art and artists, I think there's just this you know, this, this sort of new relevance that, it, that these conversations, I think, bring to the work that you've been doing for a while, or is that, is that annoying? Are you like, really? I've been doing this for forever. And <laughs> no, not really. I, I think that um, we go through cycles, mm -hmm. 
And we were in the recycling phase, and as we've come to learn more, depending on the different administrations and, and where society is, then we come back around to the discussion, and, and now the discussion is about sustainability. Mm -hmm. It's not just about recycling, it's about um, longevity and, and survival of the human race. So um, I, I'm not, like I said, I don't think about it like that. Maybe I'm too self-absorbed. Like we're in the work. No, I think you were there. I think you've been there. And the, the rest of us are sort of catching up. I really like this one element that I, I use sometimes the same fabrics and you know, I share like same bits and pieces of them. But have you ever gone to um, the ice cream man, you know, the truck when you were a kid and got one of those cones? Like a good humor yeah. cone that has the chocolate uh, fudge. And then when you un unroll it, the paper is this perfect arc. And the chocolate moves like writing. So I save a bunch of those wrappers. And that, that piece has it in there. And uh, it's intriguing to me. So if you guys have those ice creams, you can save them. <laughs> Think of me in the summertime. Yeah. So, for you, the relationship of painting and sculpture, you said you never studied sculpture, but it seems like, you know, for whatever reason you felt motivated to create objects, but then you're also really, you know, embedding these objects into a service. And, and I think that's, um, I'm not sure if that's something you're teaching people to do now. It's still not, um, like, you're sort of inventing the rules in terms of, of how to do that and, and sort of how to invent these things. I mean, I definitely do see a, a Rauschenberg um, influence or a Jasper Johns a little bit. So, like, the Abex influence is certainly there. Thornton Dial. Maybe mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in this particular one, too. And then also the layers and, and the graffiti and the sort of substrate underneath the, the surface. And, and there's a pair of shoes right there. Yeah. Yes, I have a box of my old shelves that sometimes emerge from pieces. Yeah, so I guess I'm always seeing where uh, the calligraphic and, and the, the sculpture can meet. And I don't want to force myself to make them come together. So, but I'm working on sculpture and painting at the same time, and they inform each other. The same fabrics that are in the paintings are also sometimes in the sculptures, and vice versa. Um, I guess I think of these as more like ex the expressive energy, and the sculptures as the other side where it's the potential. Like if you cut one of the sculptures open, it would unravel like this. And then when you, so you've also been doing public commissions, and that's something it seems like recently you've been doing more of, and so installations in public places. Um, so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of those projects, how they came about, and if you think about them, sort of, do you have to think about them differently than the work that you're doing sort of more for yourself in your studio? No, I, I guess for me, I think about everything in the same way. I think about each piece, even, like a 70-foot mural. In a train station. Or in the landscape of a, mm -hmm. of a city, as the same as I would a painting. I think about the overall gesture, 
and where the figure and the, the observer will be in proximity to it. And then I think about details. I go from the macro to the micro in, in everything, I guess. Because um, for me, each work, even a big mural, is is a, kind of like a two-way mirror where you see me on one side and and the viewers on the other. So it's always for the viewer and with the idea that someone will be there to finish the work by looking at it. Um, so with a big piece, sometimes, you know, I, I, my first public project was 100, and 100 feet or 150 feet uh, mosaic piece that's on the side of a building in New York. And um, it was the first time I ever worked with fabricators. And it was hard for me because I do everything myself. Uh, I like, maybe I'm a control freak, maybe I just need to touch everything. Do you have studio assistants or no? Sometimes. Okay, for Sometimes, specific projects. For specific things. Um, I, I, I make thing, my big sculptures in modules so that I can, and I keep things on wheels because I sometimes work in the middle of the night and I can't always have someone come. <laughs> and um, so, so things are in increments that I can manage it myself. <laughs> but when it comes to a big project like that, you're handing it an artwork over to be translated. And luckily, I've been able to work with artisans whose hands were like my own hands. So. I mean, what if that didn't happen? What would you do? I well, you get to choose who you work with. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose chose people that um, were were good at that. <laughs> okay, and then you're also. It seems like in recent years you're also incorporating elements of performance. You're collaborating with people who are dancers, choreographers, musicians. Okay. Okay. We can, we can see that at the end. So curious about how, is it just an, again, an extension of painting, an extension of the making, the collaborative, and sort of yeah. gestural? It all began, well, it's hard to talk about it without the visuals, but it, I guess it began with wanting to like recognizing how I moved in the space. Um, these are some of the sculptures that you were talking about before with the bundling. And this one is dyed on the right with, with text. Um, sometimes I make textiles now. I may have put too many images in here for us for our talk, so I'll click through. But we're getting there. They're all beautiful. This one, I, I came, t I was inspired by adornment on old, like, ancient sculptures um, and necklaces and things like that. Uh, this is my most recent sculpture that I just finished. In flame, wait, what was that called? In flame, my golden hues of love. Well, it's the way you added that just like that face. Like, <laughs> no, I, I'm curious. I want to know more about this piece. Well, um, the title comes from a Rumi poem. Mm. A lot of my titles come from poetry, lyrics, and um, this one is is a sort of deity figure. I, that uh, it's it's not three figures. It's one. And there's three images of it. 
But when I saw that together like that, I was like, oh, I need to make two more and put them together. Like the three graces? Like the three graces, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're very mysterious. They're very sensual. I love the sort of golden tassel that's hanging down. Are they human size? They look like they... They're larger. They're bigger. This one is eight feet tall. Mm. Um, It's soft. Uh, Yeah. Working with gold is very enticing. It's like, it feels like you have the Midas touch. So I, and it makes me feel like I want to make everything gold. So mm-hmm. I try to have to pull back after I make something gold. But sh- this is by far the sexiest piece mm-hmm. I've ever made. It's sexy. <laughs> I agree. It's so sexy. Yeah. Uh, these are like recent works. This is a piece with cut mirrored dibon. Uh, and it's all collage. Moving forward. Sorry, I threw this off with the way these were put together. Oh, so we're getting to performance. Right. Oh, and I like seeing how you can really get a sense of the scale with this one, with, these, with the humans and the... And why do, for you, like, it has to be, like, the scale is very important. Like, it has to sort of almost make humans feel small to sort of have that power. Or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I work on very small scales too. Mm-hmm. Like I make palm-sized tabletop things. They're just not as easy to photograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to work big and, and small. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's a scale thing happening. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a bravado to working bigger. Mm-hmm. And, and it takes up space. This is a museum where the the wall that they gave me to work with was 40 feet, so I wanted it to have an enveloping vibe to it. And, and also it's reflective, so uh, it brings in the light and it casts this shape on the floor in, in reflection. Like this piece does it too. Uh, so for this one, I collaborated with uh, an aerialist that that uh, and we created a sound piece for it. That the gesture she and I collaborated, but the gestures that she used uh, and how she wrapped herself with the silks, she became basically a sculpture. Uh, so I guess in answer, now we get to answer your mm-hmm. question: <laughs> is that the performance uh, comes out of the sculpture and the gesture? Uh, this this is the first one that I did. Um, where I wanted to essentially become like one of my sculptures. And I performed this in my studio, not knowing what it would be like at the end. And not knowing that the, how the gesture of tying myself up would become almost a dance. And not knowing that the finished image would have so much of a relationship to bondage or subjugation. Um, so, and I never performed that in person, but then that led me to create more figurative works and to go back and forth uh, to a new piece uh, that I am performing on Saturday that I've only performed once, and so I'm still figuring it out, um, where it's a sort of ritual. And is that going to be, is that in the gallery of where Generations is, or where are you doing a performance at the BMA on Saturday? On Saturday at the BMA, I will be performing this piece with three 
lovely women who will help me with this, articulate this breathing uh, exchange and collage that I've created as part of this. It's an installation, and it's on the first floor of the main entrance when you come in, it's to the left. Okay, so not not like the, the contemporary, uh, not, not in the Green Thomas part, like you go up the steps, like the main yeah. porch. Yeah, you come into the building at the first floor. Okay, okay. And you turn left okay. at the desk. And it's right it's right through there. You'll see, because okay. there's a blue hallway. Um, so with this particular piece, is not a spoiler alert, I guess, um, these images. So I'm applying the same gesture to my body as I do the sculptures. That's the last one. Okay. Okay. Do we want to do some questions? Yeah. yeah. I have lots of questions, but I will share my questions. Questions, with comments, all. complaints. So thanks for being here, Shanique, and thanks for doing this, Kara. Um, wow, I thought I knew just about everything about your art, but I've learned some new things. Do you think about Bryce Martin at all in the calligraphy that you do? Hmm. No. Okay. Oh, the the no, I don't think about the work, I guess. I, yeah. When I was a kid, I was into Motherwell more, mm -hmm. like how, how one gesture became the, the body of the piece. And then this is a stretch, but when I saw the Bundle Me performance piece, I thought of Joseph Boys. Mm -hmm. And when he did that with the with the wolf. With the wolf. Yeah. The, the, the scope of your work is amazing, so thank you for that. And I think yeah, I think that resonates like that sort of resonates with me as well in terms of um, you know, it's interesting. So Shanique was in the 30 American show, which came out in, what was the first, 2008? It's been traveling for 10 years. It's been traveling for 10 years, so yeah. like 2010. I think it's on the barns. Yeah? Right now, Philly. So I feel like the Rubels somehow are often ahead of the curve in terms of what they're showing, what they're collecting. But the show that they did, was it last year, the New Shamans? That was a... That was a big, uh, that was a show. It's the idea of it, you know, I think when you talk about it, it's more like spirituality and, and ritual that's in the work, but there is this kind of hot and cool shaman thing happening in the art world again, but it seems like a strange thing to, to say that about, but I'm... I would no. never call myself a shaman. Right. You, you don't have to call yourself that. But, um, just I'm, I'm very leery of people who do. Yeah. All right. So we won't tell me you're But um, the, just the idea that this is, this is allowed in the art world, you know? Like we're allowed to be, to have feelings and, and have spirituality if we want to after, after many decades okay, so of formalism. You asked me if I'm... People will talk about sustainability and recycling. Ever irks me? Mm. And I said no. But that irks me. What you were just talking because because <laughs> literally when I was in grad school and making work and talking about meditation and using 
the work in that way, I was told, like I had a show at the Creative Alliance, mm. and um, there was an article about it in the city paper. I remember, I remember this so distinctly. Who wrote that article? Glenn McNabb. Oh. No, it wasn't, no, it wasn't Glenn, it was okay. somebody else. We don't know. Blake got, no, that's something else. That's DC. Anyway. Um, it wasn't the person who wrote it, it was the professor that they spoke to and got a quote from, mm. said that all we had to do was help Shanique out of her hokey spirituality. Um, so oh. you remember the life digs like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's really messed up. Not gonna name names, but we might do that later. No, I'm not gonna name names. But, <laughs> I mean, it's just the thing is, is that, um, he said that to the newspaper? Yes, and all of my professors were male, except Nicole Eisenman, who would come once in a while. Um, and, and there was this thing about the personal, and the emotional, and the spiritual. That, and it was all mis- like a kind of misogynistic method. Or another word. But I was say Macho. I was going to say the F word. Oh. Anyway. Okay. But not, because this is a quality. This is a library. <laughs> we're at the library. We're at the library. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Is there another question? Cindy. So, is it really, really awesome to like, watch your journey, especially having been part of it at some point along the way, which is so lucky? You're an amazing human and so kind, and you've always been so generous to spirit. Um, so watching you transition and kind of migrate to this performance like side of yourself, um, did that feel like such a natural thing to do? Or was it something that you were like, ah, like I need to do it? Like I need to, but I don't want to, but I have to do it. Yeah, like did, was there just like a jumping off point or did it feel easy? Like this is the next stage. Like, um, that's a really good question. It really is. I, it felt natural to do, but then I talked myself out of it. Mm. And it, you know, it's taken me 12 years or 10, you know, like 10 years later to perform in public. Like the performance gestures that I've, I've done several um, were through other bodies dancers. When I was in grad school, I did a couple of pieces that were videotaped. Um, so they were studio gestures that were shot, but not in front of people. And until last summer when I first did this. Uh, the other ones were with dancers or through other, other bodies. And, and it's not out of a sense of obligation, but it's, it's, I, I wanted to do it. It felt natural to do. It felt like a natural extension of some of the ideas. And, and actually the objects and the way that they're made. But to do it has been difficult, or was at first, to give myself the space and confidence to share that because it is very um, exposing to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I, I often think that, that all of us who are in uh, creative careers, a lot of our path is sort of getting to a point where we give ourselves permission. I mean, there, there's definitely the, the education and then 
sort of the, the criticism that other people have given us, the sort of uh, structures that sort of we battle against. And um, so for you, what, what did it take to sort of get to the turning point where you um, could embrace that hokey spiritualism or whatever it was that this person, you know, said unfairly um, about the work that you wanted to do? How did, how did you get yourself to that point? Because I think every artist, or maybe it's a process, maybe we were constantly getting ourselves to that point over and over again. But. I, I think the latter, that we're constantly getting ourselves to that point, um, for me, I get there quicker because than I used to. Mm-hmm. Because um, I try to leave uh, my ego and the things that I care about other people's thoughts and and all the sense of obligation and all that chatter out of the studio when I go in. But at the same time, I try to be really honest with myself and edit. Because I don't like to fall in love with my hand and the work, as beautiful as things can be sometimes. I want to be able to make it work and make it good. And, and not good in the sense that everyone loves it or they're going to Instagram it or whatever, but that it, it, it's complete, that it's completely balanced in all the elements and the energy of it is complete. So when I use that as, as the goal, then it's easier for me to let go and do, do what I have to do. So when you get lost in the work and you're sort of uh, not thinking about your own self and your own needs, but you're thinking about the no. needs of the work, then yeah. that sort of sets you free. Yeah. And then sometimes you it doesn't always, you know, sometimes you do get lost and you don't know why you're making it or what you want to make next and when I when I get lost I draw and I write about it. And I think you know sketching and writing down ideas is the bridge between looking and that gestation period where you are uncertain and not being afraid of that uncertainty. That's part of the work. Being uncertain and being doubtful. It's all part of it. Asking questions. Yeah. Does does being in Los Angeles help? Right now it does. <laughs> yeah. It's sunny. Yeah. <laughs> and you're loving it. I do. Yeah. Anybody else? One in the back? One in the back? One in the back and one in the front. So we two. Yeah. Where'd my mom go? Your work is very interesting and inspiring. I'd like to know what kinds of adhesives you use for your flat pieces that are on the wall. Yeah. Um, I use medium. Okay. I, for the majority, different weights of matte medium, you know, the clear kind, I use okay. heavy, extra heavy gel, uh, regular gel, matte medium, um, and weight. And I let things dry. Um, Sometimes I use Magnetac for, but that's really rare. So you're working flat. I I I put everything up. Well, I go from the flat floor to the wall, and uh, sometimes I have I use mop brushes that are kind of big, and I'm on the ground, and then it's on the wall, and I pin. I don't commit anything at first. Uh, I I move things around, so I'll pin up bits of fabric and. 
and paper matter and move it until I feel like it's where it needs to be, and then I commit it with Matt on, on a table or on the floor. Thank you. What time is your um, performance in the BMA? There's two times, one at 11 a.m. and one at 7, and there's like an online registration for it. Okay. Check, check out the link. I will. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. The lady in the back with the white shirt.
emergence, like to come from a place and to show up as something different, to open yourself, to be vulnerable, because vulnerability is not necessarily being vulnerable for us, it's a personal practice. In your practice, you find yourself in a place of liberating yourself to that next space. I got you. Thank you. Thank you for your lovely comments, too. Um, I do feel like I am attempting to liberate myself and maybe do my own. Uh, I wouldn't use the word liberate. Um, I guess transformation is something I'm really interested in. In, in general, uh, is something that I'm striving for. A personal evolution, and sometimes that is through the alchem alchemy of transforming materials into something else. Uh, but you mentioned black and my use of black. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up black. <laughs> it is my favorite color, and um, I use it a lot, and it is the basis, I think, of all things, uh, figuratively and physically, in, in my work and in the world. And black writing is like primordial. It is written, it is done, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, it feels like grounded and like weight and like... Finality. And mystical, mm -hmm. and within black, there's also blackness. There's politics. There's the ink. It, it's 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 like blood. It's it's everything to me. And and so sometimes I'll go through. You know, there's color, but there's always black, and there'll always be black and white. Mm, and that's the the structure. And and I have to say, as a as a reformed. Uh, Painter, I think black is the most difficult color for a painter to master. When I'm teaching introductory painting, I don't let my students use black out of the tube. They have to mix it. But using a pure black, I mean, there's only a few artists, I feel like, who can really use it well. But it almost, it functions as every color, but as, as no color. But it's like pure structure as it's well. It's everything nothing. It's space. It's the void. It's the potential of everything. It's powerful. It's very powerful. It's what you see when you close your eyes. It's, you know, and I was taught that way too, to make my own black and not to use white either, to, to mix color. So I started making my own inks and stuff, so I mix my black. But black. We'll end on black. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.